Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, uh, we redeemed the dark Jedi Jahani, built our first lightsaber, and rightly complained about the Jedi Enclave Council a lot. Now, in episode 26, we find out why the Rakata are to blame for Anakin's totally justified hatred of sand, and finally meet everyone's favorite meatbag assassin. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, real quick before we move on, uh, there are a couple of corrections. Uh, the first is um, the Corellia and Duro systems are separate from one another, though they do reside in adjoining sectors. For many episodes, we have referred to it as the Corellia Duro system, as though they are sh- as though they shared the same star, which is not the case. Additionally, we stated that Revan and Malik took the title of Darth when they reached the Starforge command deck, but it was actually the Sith Emperor who gave them the title before sending them back to the known galaxy. Regardless of the timing, they still broke free of the Emperor's control, and Revan established a Sith Empire in the line of Exar Kun, Naga Sadao, and Freed Nad upon reaching the Starforge command deck. We apologize for the errors. All right, before we get started today, we need to talk about something we have received a number of questions about, and frankly, something we should have mentioned when we started Knights of the Old Republic. What's the best way to play Knights of the Old Republic in 2019? Currently, it's available on PC via Steam, Xbox One, and Xbox 360 via direct download, um, for Apple computers, tablets, and phones via iTunes, um, and Android devices via Google Play. If you don't care about a few graphics updates and some smoothed out game mechanics that come with the PC mods, it's the best way to play is on the Xbox One or an Xbox 360. You can just download Knights of the Republic and play. You can even use a console controller, which is probably the best way to play the game. It's easy, fast. Um, And the best way to play is in 2019, as long as you have an Xbox. Now, by far the best looking and smoothest way to play is downloading from Steam and installing a series of mods. Reddit user... Snigaru, that's S-N-I-G-A-R-O-O, compiled a list of the best mods for KOTOR and KOTOR 2, and a guide for installing each, which we will link that in the show notes. Um, it's not simply downloading the mods. Uh, it's not simply downloading mods like you like with other games on Steam. They have to be, the game and the mod files have to be edited, and there's more than 40 mods listed. So that's an extensive process. So if you don't deal with mods very often or aren't really a computer savvy or aren't, just not interested in doing that. It can be a bit overwhelming. Um, you don't need to worry about much about having an older PC or Mac for that matter, because the system requirements aren't enormous. Um, the Geo Public is also available on the Mac and appears to work very well. It has slightly updated graphics, no issues with controls. And really, any version you get now will look a little better than it did on release and certainly look good for a 16-year-old video game. Finally, if you don't mind the controls, the mobile and tablet versions are very enjoyable and even sport the same minor graphics enhancements. Again, the mobile controls can be wonky like any mobile game, but it's portable Knights of the Old Republic. It costs about $5 to $15 American dollars anywhere, and you can even get it for close to free during sales. The, canon- the canonical order of planets. Uh, we've alluded to it enough, so let's talk about the order, what we know, and what we're, and what we're inferring. 
First, we know the Ebonhawk visited Tatooine first after departing Dantooine because Kalonord there died. Uh, Kalonord died there, according to an in-universe history about notorious gunslingers. In Knights of the Old Republic, Nord is only encountered on the second world where a star map is discovered after the first is discovered on Dantooine. Uh, thus, we, get, we go to Tantooine first, and that sort of concludes uh, what we know, but there's a lot we can infer from a few random sources, each of which lists the order as Tatooine first, Kashyyyk second, Manon third, and Korriban last but, lot, but not least. In-game level modules for these worlds are numerically designated in this order, Tatooine 1, Kashyyyk 2, etc., etc. Uh, the KOTOR official strategy guide also lists the, this is the preferred order of planets. Finally, and probably most telling, at least two cutscenes uh, in the game list the worlds in this order, including the reveal when Bastila names off the worlds with star maps. For these reasons, we will we will proceed to Tatooine, then Kashyyyk, then Manon, and then Korriban. This order also allows Revan to fill out his entire party more quickly by by picking up HK-47 and Jolie Bendo early. Now, if you're an astute listener, you'll realize that visiting Korriban last in Knights of the Old Republic presents a big problem for Carthanassi's companion loyalty mission. That's because Karth's mission requires Revan to find three star maps, including the one on Dantooine, and pass seven dialogue checks, which is a lot. Also, it can't be completed if Korriban is the last planet visited in-game uh, due to just general game restrictions and, uh, you know, what happens with Kars loyalty mission. So if you're playing along, do not go to Corbin last or you will miss out on a good side quest. Just do Manon last. It's strange anyway. We will of course be going through Kars loyalty mission because we aren't constrained by game mechanics. In addition to visiting the planets in the aforementioned order, we will also return to Dantooine Tatooine and Manon briefly before going to Corbin to finish up some side quests and what have you. All right, so Knights of the Old Republic, Part 4, Tatooine and the History of the Rakata. Immediately after the Iban Hawk takes off from Dantooine, we get a cutscene giving us a bit more background on the Sith. Admiral Karath is confronted by Darth Malak on the bridge of his flagship, the Leviathan. Right away, we should make one thing clear, despite rumors that he wears armor, Malak actually walks around in crimson, form-fitting bodysuits that leave nothing to the imagination. They call it armor in the game, but no one's buying that. Karath reports that the Star Forge is operating at 200% of its normal capacity, but Lord Malak is far more concerned with learning how Bastila escaped the destruction of Terrace. Admiral Karath says that Chan was aided by a Republic pilot and war hero named Carthur Nassi, who served under Karath during the Mandalorian Wars. Actually, he says the Mandalore Wars, which just sounds weird. Karath then introduces... Malik to their eyewitness of these events, Kalo Nord. He, his escape from Terrace remains a mystery, and he simply says he's very hard to kill. Before Malik returns to whatever it is he does in his spare time, it's probably something bodysuit related. Karath has one more tidbit of information. He requests an audience away from the normal rabble of soldiers to discuss some sensitive information that Kalo Nord has about Bastula's other companions. Then the screen fades to black and they don't even let us know what was said, which seems pretty rude if you ask us. We immediately move into a cutscene of Bastila and Revan's next shared vision 
a brief glimpse of the star map in a sandy cave somewhere on Tatooine. We see the platform open and the star map is ever so briefly displayed. Then the mission ends and Bastille and Revan have a chat about it. They determine it's the cave of some kind, which, yeah, good detective work there, team. Character profile Darth Malak. Before diving into Malak, we, meaning me, wanted to include this very good and correct quote about Darth Malak from Knights of the Old Republic concept director John Gallagher. It's taken from Alex J. Kane's making of book, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, wherein Gallagher says, quote, I gave James Olin shit about the Malak design. I was like, what the hell is that? You should just ha- you should just have a turtleneck covering his mouth. He got his mandible cut off. I was like, for fuck's sake, James, really? And yeah, that's about the best description of Malik I've ever heard. And that being said, we've waited far too long to introduce Knights of the Old Republic's big bad. A human male, Malik was born on the distant Outer Rim world Quelly, and given the name Alec at birth, when he was young, the Mandalorians took his home world, but his family escaped to live in the Republic as refugees. Alec was later found to be Force-sensitive and accepted into the Jedi Order as a boy, He trained at the Jedi, where he trained at the Jedi Enclave on Dantooine. There, he met another Padawan who would eventually become Revan, and the two became best friends almost immediately. Alec also picked up the nickname Squint around this time as the Republic gave refugees surnames based on the villages or cities of origin. And Alex was far, Alex was far too long to pronounce. Squinquarchesimus. That, yep, that's the hardest name we've ever come across on this show, and that's saying a lot. Uh, when they were older, both Revan and Alex sought training from Master Zarleston, who was situated on Coruscant at the time. After Alec was knighted, he began to have misgivings about the Jedi Orders in action against the Mandalorians waging war in the Outer Rim. Luckily for Alec, his old friend was having the same thoughts. In 3964, the Jedi who would become Revan began to espouse radical views about the Jedi's failure, the, the Jedi failure of their own code for ignoring those outside the Republic, who was soon joined by Alec and many other young Jedi who together formed the Revengist, a splinter group within the Jedi intent on pushing the Order to war. Upon joining, Alec took on Revan as his ceremonial master, just like every other member of the Revanchist Jedi did. In late 3964 BBY, Alec was recruiting for the Revanchist Jedi on Terrace when he simultaneously met Zane Carrick and saved his life at the same time. Zane only knew him as Squint, and the two began a friendship that would see Squint throw his considerable influence and power in the Force behind Carrick's drive to clear his name. Immediately after leaving Terrace, Squint led the Revanchist Jedi in a scouting mission to Shurjan, only to fall into a Mandalorian trap and get captured. All of the Jedi were imprisoned on Flashpoint Station and tortured by Dr. Demigol, the Mandalorian scientist obsessed with understanding the Force. All the Jedi suffered extensive torture at Demigol's hands, but the Doctor was especially fond of harming Malak due to his strength in the Force and ability to take a beating. In 3963, an Arcanian offshoot companion of Zane's named Jariel was captured, mistaken for a Jedi, and sent to Flashpoint. There, Squint gave himself up to protect Jariel because he could sense no force sensitivity within her and that the experiments would kill her. All the Jedi and Jariel were eventually rescued by Zane and Roland Dyer, though Squint was now permanently bald due to Demigol's experiments. 
Later in 3963, Squint and Revan were investigating an unknown world when they each felt a disturbance in the force caused by the Mandalorians nuking Sirocco. Then, Squint, now going by Alec again, was involved in the Adaska affair, which saw Argo Adaska attempt to control exogorths like superweapons and use that to extort power, extort power from the Republic and Mandalorians. Alec helped Zane, Jariel, and their friends escape and was convinced of Carrick's innocence in the Padawan massacres after seeing his kindness. By the time of the Vindication event in late 3963, Alec had taken up the name Malak, which he considered to be his true name since it was the only one he chose. In a last gasp attempt to clear Zane Carrick's name, Malak acted as an intercessor for, the Zane, for Zane on Coruscant, bringing in Masters Vruk Lamar and Vandar Toker to assist in defeating the Covenant Jedi during Vindication. Alec, who was now going by what he considered to be his real name, Malak, spent a lot of time with Zane's crew and grew quite close to Jeriel. The two sparred, and Malak made advances on Jeriel. Sorry. The two sparred, and Malak made advances on Jeriel, but she wasn't ready for a relationship and rebuffed him. Probably because his pickup line was about how Jedi should copulate to make more force sensitives. That's just awful. Malak, Malak was then present in 3963 when his oldest friend Revan finally took up that name and his iconic mask on Cathar. At some point between 3964 and 3962, Malak made an impassioned plea to a number of young Jedi Knights, including Mitra Shurik and, ba- and Basil Shant. Surik and the others joined the revanchist cause, but Shan declined. Later, Malak presided over and testified at the war crimes tribunal of Dr. Demigal and led the search when the defendant escaped. As the Jedi became more involved in the Mandalorian War, so did Malak. In 3962, he, Revan, and Mitra Surik led a fleet of interdictor, cruiser, interdictor cruisers to the, uh, to the rescue at the Battle of Duro, which helped turn around the Republic's lagging war effort. After this, Malak was named general and became second in command of the entire Republic fleet after Revan was promoted to Supreme Commander. During this time, Malak joined Revan in finding and discovering the Rakatan ruins on Dantooine after seeking forbidden knowledge. Malak, Malak and Revan were still very close, so much so that when Revan discovered even more extensive knowledge on the dark side on Malakor V, he only introduced those, finding to Malak, those findings to Malak. After that, the two friends fell to the dark side together. General Malik fought in many battles before the end of the war, but it is unclear whether he was present for the Battle of Malachor V in 3960, though it seems likely. Shortly after the Battle of Malachor V and the defeat of the Mandalorians, Malik and Roman took what remained of the Republic fleet into the Unknown Regions. In the Unknown Regions, Malik and Revan fought fought the Sith Emperor, a mysterious figure whom Mandalore the Ultimate spoke of with his dying breath. They followed his trailer to Rekia, then to Nathma, which in turn led to Draman Kass. Ostensibly, Revan and Malak sought out the Sith Emperor to end his Sith threat and return to the galaxy, but they had both fallen to the dark side, so this is probably more of a power play. On Draman Kass, the duo worked undercover as mercenaries, trying to find out any information about that Sith Emperor. However, Revan and Malak were unprepared for his dark side power when they entered his throne room with lightsabers drawn. The Sith Emperor didn't even rise. He simply dominated Revan and Malak's minds and made them his willing servants. 
The Sith Emperor then granted them each the Sith title Darth and sent them back into the known galaxy to find the Star Forge, which he learned of when probing their minds. They were to create an overwhelming fleet attack the Republicans soften the galaxy up for the impending true Sith invasion. Revan and Malak then returned to the galaxy with the Republic fleet they had taken from Alakor V. We're just assuming everyone in the fleet sat around on their hands while Revan and Malak snooped around, but we can't say for sure. By the time they arrived on the Star Forge's command deck in 3960, Revan and Malak had broken free of the Sith Emperor's mental controls and proclaimed their own Sith Empire. Revan, always considered the stronger of the two, became Malak's Sith Master, and each was proclaimed Dark Lord of the Sith. They then set about defeating the Republic. After becoming a Sith Lord, all of the worst parts of Malak came rushing out. In 3959, he took the Leviathan as his flagship and ordered the utter destruction of Telos IV as a loyalty test for new Sith Admiral Saul Karath. The order was in contravention of his contravention of his master's intentions for the world, and Malik's defiance soon became a point of contention between the two old friends. As the Jedi Civil War continued, Malik further chafed under the leadership of Darth Revan, believing his master to be too soft to lead the Sith. When he finally voiced his opinion, Revan decided to teach his student an object lesson in shutting the fuck up. The two dueled fiercely, clashing red lightsabers on the bridge of Revan's flagship, but the master soon got the better of the apprentice. Revan triumphed after he gained an upper hand and removed Malik's jaw with a lightsaber strike, uh, taking Malik's jaw off at the hinge. For the rest of his life, Darth Malik would wear a metal prosthesis over the scar and speak through a vocabulator. They really should have called him Metal Beard Solid with the way the metal replacement jaw looks like, well, a metal beard. Um, Malik's rage was immeasurable, and he set about finding a way to betray his master. He finally got the opportunity when both Revan and Malik were drawn into, into a trap in the Outer Rim, and a boarding party invaded Revan's flagship. In 3957, Revan saw his... Op- or, Darth Malik saw his opening and didn't hesitate, ordering the Leviathan to fire upon Revan's flagship. Malik's betrayal appeared to kill Revan and the entire Jedi boarding party, so Malik assumed the title of Sith Master and took on a new apprentice, Darth Bandon. After his ascension, Malik threw throughout Revan's sorry, Malik threw out Revan's old twenty-year plan for galactic domination in favor of his own. In favor of his own strategy, fire all turbo laser batteries and damn the consequences. In 3956, Malik set a, con- uh, set a considerable amount of his forces to finding Bastila Shan and set a trap for her above the Outer Rim World Terrace. Malik's Sith forces almost captured the young Jedi, but she escaped for Dantooine just as the Dark Lord turned Terrace into rubble. All right. So back to the game storyline. First time off of the Ibn Hawk and Tatooine, and we're taking Bastila and Mission as our companions. We've landed at Dock 32 in a settlement called Anchorhead, which was first referenced in the opening minutes of A New Hope. However, before we even descend the loading ramp, there's a circuit corporation bureaucrat looking to hassle us for a docking fee. Now, it's not that we don't have the credits. After all, Revan's taken money from all the Pasuk players he's come across because the game is pretty easy and his opponents are mostly rubes. Not to mention the credits he's received as rewards for completing side and main quests. 
No, the point is we aren't getting extorted out of credits and also that the point is that we aren't getting extorted out of credits and also that money goes directly to Circa and we'll be damned if we're giving those slavers even one credit. Now, we'll almost certainly have to give Circa money in the game as part of some scheme to take them down, but you get the idea. So Revener, Bastion, or even Jahani use a Jedi mind trick on that docking officer to get out of paying a nominal fee. Lest you think hustling degenerate gamblers and using a Jedi mind trick to get up a parking ticket are unbecoming of a Jedi, Jolie Bindo says they're fine, which is good enough for us. Also, come on, perpetual light side Revan doesn't get to have any fun. Anyway, the docking officer can also provide a decent amount of context for Tatooine and Anchorhead. He will spill dirt on how poorly Circa's operation on Tatooine is faring after a persuasion check or Jedi mind trick. Zerka mining efforts are failing because the ore on Tatooine has strange magnetic properties that render it worthless and they've resorted to hunting tours and sponsoring a local swoop track. Once we're done talking to the docking manager, an Aqualist trader mishandles some cargo and now Revan is the owner of some Gizka. This Gizka issue will only get more annoying with time as some of the Gizka have already escaped their crate inside the Ivan Hawk and there's no way to give them back without getting lost in the Byzantine series of requisition forms. However, we'll deal with the Giska later because it's loyalty quest time. While we've referenced the companion loyalty quests before, we're really going to dig into them on Tatooine because there are three that can be completed on Revan's first visit. Since most of the companion loyalty missions and the requisite dialogue checks can be passed after finding the first star map on Dantooine, the next step in these quests trigger upon arrival on Tatooine. In case you're unfamiliar or have forgotten, companion loyalty quests all follow the same pattern. Revan must speak to his companions when new dialogue options become available and get the companion to open up about the big issue in their past that they must confront. By successfully persuading the companion to open up a little more about whatever's bothering them during each conversation, Revan passes a dialogue check. Once this has occurred a set number of times with each companion, a messenger will arrive for them either upon disembarking the Ebon Hawk or when the companion is added to the active party. The messenger gives Revan and the companion critical info. Coincidentally, about the same issue, the the same issue the companion had recently confided in Revan. Revan then assists the companion in completing the quest and bringing closure to a tragic event in the companion's past, thus finally gaining their full loyalty. Bastila's quest can trigger a messenger and be completed on Tatooine in just one visit. Juhani's may receive a messenger on Tatooine, but the quest won't trigger there. Candorus's messenger arrives on Dantooine and is completed on the first trip to Tatooine. Mission's loyalty quest, however, triggers on Dantooine and is completed on a second visit, visit to Tant- Tatooine. Good lord, get a new naming device for these planets, but requires an initial visit to Tatooine and a trip to Kashyyyk in between. God. I even I, I wrote this and I'm I'm having trouble. God. Meanwhile, Jolie and Karth can receive messengers on Tatooine, but not if it's the first planet visited and neither is completed there. Jolie Bindo obviously doesn't join the group until Kashik, which is the second planet we'll visit. Whereas Karth's mission won't trigger until Revan finds three star maps and passes seven dialogue checks. 
If you're wondering about Big Z, his loyalty mission is the main objective on Kashik. Plus, you can't get much more loyal than a life debt. HK47 and T3 sadly don't get loyalty missions either, though they are both focal points of the main quest in Knights of the Old Republic 2. Still, it's not cool, Bioware. You know, Star Wars has a whole thing about not thinking about droids seriously. I'm very excited to see what happens with the new C-3PO um, in Rise of the Skywalker. Not to go on a tangent about droid autonomy, <laughs> yeah. but... All right, so, location profile. <laughs> I mean, Tatoo. yeah, it's... <laughs> Did you know there are, like, 15 na- planet names that have this? There's, like... Dantooine, Tatooine, Cladoween, I don't even remember. There, there, there are literally like 10 or 15 of them. It's, yeah. Sorry. Tangent. No, it's great. No, it's... I mean, it, it, it feels a bit much <laughs> even in A New Hope, right? Where we get Tatooine and then no, no, Dantooine. It's like, George, did you have one idea? Yeah. You have 1.5 ideas. So, Tatooine... I mean, look, I, I'll be honest. I would love to be paid $4.1 billion for my one idea. Jesus. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, the, 70s, the 70s, a simpler time. All right. So <laughs> we are on Tatooine. Um, we're going to introduce you to Tatooine, although if you've seen anything Star Wars – you have seen Tatooine almost certainly. Um, so we've only visited the first planet shown in Star Wars once in our 25 episodes of this podcast so far. And that was for like one page in a comic. So we're going to confine this profile to of Tatooine to more recent history as the planet's earliest mention in the timeline will be discussed further on. In 5000 BBY... A battle between unknown combatants took place above Tatooine, and the planet was littered with starship wreckage as a result. In 4200 BBY, Anchorhead was founded by a group of miners and became the world's first settlement, at least in recent history. Before 4017 BBY, a Jedi named Sidrona Diath arrived on the planet with his young son, Dace, who would spend most of his formative years on Tatooine. Dace Diath would go on to fight valiantly during the Great Sith War, and unfortunately he died in the Kron Cluster in 3996. In 3993, a contingent of Jedi Knights fought and killed the last Tarantatek on Tatooine near the end of the Great Hunt. By the time of the Jedi Civil War, Sirka were the de facto rulers of the world as they oversaw Anchorhead, the only settlement of consequence, so that rule was tenuous at best. By 3956, when the Ibn Haq touched down, Circa's hold on the world was slipping by the day as their mining efforts failed spectacularly. The town of Anchorhead, meanwhile, has everything a player character could ever want. A cantina, swoop bike racing track, Tatooine's characteristic twin sons constantly bearing down on you, a droid shop, a hut crime lord, the mysterious Dune Sea, Pazak, and, of course... Sand. So much sand. What's not to love? 
Back in the game, Bastila's message requires only the Dantooine star map and passing three dialogue checks, which seems minimal until you realize there are five additional checks before Revan and Bastila will give in to their emotion and kiss. And then there's the whole point accumulation system uh, when trying to redeem Bastila and express your undying love, and but that's on the Starforge. So really, we won't fully complete Bastila's loyalty mission until the last episode that we do on Knights of the Old Republic. Of course, we're still on Tatooine, and Bastila is about to face some hard truths she's been running from for many years. In the messenger she and Revan meet at Doc 32 has urgent news about her mother, Helena, who has a constantly worsening medical condition and is an, in an irreversible terminal decline. If you recall, Bastila despises her mother and has since she was a little girl. She believes that Helena forced her father into adventures and expeditions to keep up her lavish lifestyle. Though the Helena we find in Anchorhead, in the Anchorhead Cantina, is, is wasting away and has no finery to speak of. Overcoming this ordeal will require Bastila to confront the hatred she has in her heart for her mother and face facts about her father. At first, Helena doesn't recognize her daughter. I mean, who can really blame her, though? She hasn't seen Bastila in 20 years. She also tells Bastila that her father is dead at the hands of a crate dragon on Tatooine. The two then begin their familiar verbal sparring, with Bastila accusing her mother of killing her father by driving him too hard, and Helena accusing her daughter of being a caustic jerk who doesn't care about her poor mother's plight. I mean, Helena does have a point, but holy shit, is she haughty about everything. Helena asks Bastila to search for her father's holocron to find it and return it to an old dying woman so she can have one final keepsake to remember her life's love. This is interesting for two reasons. First, yay, side quest time. And second, Bastila's dad wasn't force sensitive, so why would he have a holocron? Holocrons can only be Operated by force sensitives, but the description listed as a lists it as a data pad, so maybe it was just called a holocron by mistake. Right. So before we head out into that dune sea, we have to meet a bunch of locals, pick up some side quests, maybe meet an old friend along the way. In the circus-sponsored hunting lodge, Revan and his companions inevitably piss off some Gamorians and meet a twilight hunter named Comad Fortuna who is hunting crates dragons. As you might have guessed, Komad is an ancestor of Bib Fortuna, Jabba the Hutt's major domo in Return of the Jedi, and he's not the last long-forgotten ancestor of an original trilogy character we will meet in the game. There's also a jerk named Tanis Ven, who is going to die horribly at the hands of his aggrieved wife. We'll have cost to deal with these hunters in the future, but there's trouble at the nearby Circa office. A member of Space Greenpeace, a Duro named Daisoku, is involved in a heated shouting match with a Circa Protocol officer. The disagreement breaks up and Revan heads inside. Revan needs a Circa hunting license to legally catch prey in the Dune Sea, but they aren't issuing anymore because there are too many hunters. The officer decides to make an exception, however. In exchange for a hunting license, Revan must kill a particularly hostile group of sand people, who have declared war on Zerka. Revan will get a bounty for every gaffy stick he brings and a big bonus for the chieftain's gaffy stick. If you don't remember what a gaffy stick is, it's the thing Luke Skywalker gets knocked out with early in A New Hope. Back outside, Desoku implores Revan to conduct peaceful negotiations with the sand people because they aren't animals or savages, 
but an isolationist society. Unfortunately, Revan will need a translation drawing to accomplish the task since the language spoken by the Sand People, Tuscan, is incredibly difficult for outsiders to learn. Luckily, the Athorian who runs the droid shop and is a terrible negotiator has a protocol droid for sale. Okay, it's not really a protocol droid so much as an amoral murder bot who takes pleasure in killing and just happens to do some translating on the side. We're speaking, of course, about HK-47. Adding HK-47 to the party is great because he has excellent comedic timing and he also doesn't get along very well with T3, which is a funny reversal of the C-3PO and R2 relationship. Also, the whole walking death machine aspect is extremely helpful. Uh, HK is like a tank made of death and pithy commentary and we'll do his character profile next week because, frankly, there's a star map to be found. But first, it's time to meet the Sand People. Revan is instructed to go kill the Sand People who have made war against Zerka, but we aren't doing that shit even if this was a dark side playthrough because we're just not evil enough to ever help Zerka. That one dark side quest from the very end of the game that you're thinking about, now oh, yeah, we're definitely going to come back to that. Uh, we got HK-47 and T3 and we're heading to the Sand People Enclave. We've chosen two robot companions, so the Sand People won't shoot Revan in his Sand People di- in the Sand People disguise that we previously acquired. Any meatbag companions other than Big Z will give away Revan's disguise and cause the outside Sand People to fire. Since we're trying to stay on the good side of the Sand People, we don't want to kill any of them unnecessarily. And believe us, now that Revan is dual-wielding lightsabers, which he most assuredly is in this retelling, he's a force to be reckoned with. This, This disguise gets our group past the death turrets outside, but it won't fool any Sand People up close. However, because Revan has HK, he's able to communicate with the Sand People who are confused enough by an outsider not running from or attacking them on sight that they take him to their leader. Now, lest you think this is going to be some one-sided deal, the Sand People chieftain disabuses you of that notion immediately. Outsiders are intruders on their sacred lands, Revan is an intruder in their camp, and any false moves will result in an attack. Further, the the chieftain doesn't trust you and requires a show of good faith by Revan to even entertain the idea of calling off the attacks on Zerka. Luckily, we've already got the moisture vaporator the chieftain requires because this is a podcast and running back and forth sucks a lot. Revan, HK-47, and T3M4 gave the vaporators to the chieftain as a sign of their good intentions, and the Sand People leader agrees to halt the raid against Circa. The chieftain is surprised Revan brought the vaporators, but agrees to greatly reduce the attacks and gives Revan his gaffy stick to seal the deal. Now that Revan is inside the Sand People enclave, he's curious about the history of their people, and so are we, because a lot of that story forms the basis for the Rakata. However, in order to be deemed worthy to hear the story from the Enclave storyteller, Revan has to return with the Crate Dragon Pearl, which is a huge coincidence because we need to go to that cave to find the star map. We're allowed to pass to the Dune Sea, where there's a lot going on that we're just going to have to come back to. As we pass into the Eastern Dune Sea, there is a cut scene showing Fortuna and another hunter waiting outside a large cave with a full-grown bull crate dragon inside. In case you've forgotten, a crate dragon 
is just a very large wingless lizard with a hide that repels blaster fire and a terrible mean streak. The crate shown here is large enough to fill up most of a cave that looks big enough to fit a sand crawler inside. In the cutscene, Fortuna's hunting buddy decides to stop waiting and runs into the cave only to die in quite predictable fashion. Afterward, Revan speaks to Komet, who says that killing this crate dragon is his life's work because the last member of the Anchorhead Lodge to kill a bull crate dragon was Fortuna's father a decade ago. Thus, Komet does the only noble thing. He mines the front of the cave with enough explosives to kill the damn thing without a struggle and has Revan lured out with Banthas. Revan does this and the cutscene shows the dragon emerge from the cave only to immediately trip Komet's minefield, killing the crate after 10 or so blasts. Hunting! Sport! Revan receives a crate dragon pearl as part of his reward for a successful hunt. And can kill Fortuna to get another in a fit of dark side rage. Why would Revan care? Because the pearl is a powerful lightsaber component. But we'll talk about that next time. If you're tired of get, of hearing us say we'll talk about it the next time, well, we're tired of writing it. Within the cave, Revan and Bastila find their second star map in the cave from their shared vision. Every companion who could speak Galactic Basic notes that finding an artifact of the dark side like a star map in a cave with a full-grown bull crate dragon was no coincidence. After the star map data has been retrieved, all the companions will then claim the cave gives them bad vibes and ask to leave. Even Big Z and T3 do this. On the way out, Vastel and Revan find Shan's father's body and the holocron he carried before his unfortunate demise. When activated, the device shows a picture of a middle-edged Helena and little more, so it's almost certainly a data pad. After retrieving, it, after retrieving the data pad like Helena requested, Bastila can return it to her mother or keep it for herself. Revan advises Bastila to return it, and she agrees, but also has misgivings about helping her mother after so many years of hating her. As soon as Revan exits the cave, there's a cutscene showing Kalo Norb with some Aqualish and Rodian thugs in tow. Nord is there to kill Revan, kidnap Bastila, and collect his flea from Darth Malak, but he's a chump. Despite the seeming significance of this encounter, the actual duel is underwhelming because Nord isn't much of a fight, and we're not going to give him any more time on the show. Therefore, <clears throat> after making the trek back over to the same people Enclave, Revan can hand over the Crate Dragon Pearl to hear an old man tell it tell Grandpa Simpson's long-winded story about wearing an onion on his belt, which was the style at the time. But at least the same people's storyteller's accounting of his people's history is interesting. Well, it is if you like Star Wars deep lore. Due to their customs, the storyteller can only tell the story in chronological order and won't repeat it. Any attempt to interject an alternate interpretation, then what the same people have is a capital offense. With that in mind, let the history lesson with a within a history podcast commence and do remember that the storyteller goes on about the long walk for so long that hk47 begs for the sweet release of death and the game jumps forward several hours in time with the storyteller still talking all right point of interest the history of the rakatan infinite empire a long time ago in the year 2000 LucasArts divided up the Star Wars continuity into seven publishing eras. The publishing eras were created to organize the patchwork of expanded universe stories. 
perhaps interestingly, events in the Star Wars timeline occurred prior to the prior to the before the Republic era, though there aren't any actual published standalone stories. However, no events occur after the final era, Legacy, which ends in 138 after the Battle of Yavin. Now, for our purposes, we only need to discuss two of the seven eras, before the Republic era and the Old Republic era. Before the Republic encompasses all events and stories that occurred from 36,453 BBY to 25,053 BBY. Why these are randomly specific dates? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I was literally just apologizing for those dates because. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. No, that's fine. That's no, all. Okay. Uh, that, I mean, li- literally, I was, I was just apologizing for their existence. <laughs> It's good. It's good. Apparently, very important things happened in the uh, 53s BBY, but uh, only 9,000 years apart. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, the Old Republic era, meanwhile, lasts from 2553 BBY to 1000 BBY. Also, draw upon that uncategorized time before 36,453 because the Rakata are ancient, and that uncategorized time is vast. Dating back to 13 million BPY, which is the earliest known date in the Star Wars expanded universe when the galaxy formed <laughs> following a Big Bang type event. As we're about to see, despite being created as backstory for Knights of the Old Republic, the Ricardo were responsible for much of the galaxy's foundational technology. Obviously, the storytelling didn't cover all these details, except the especially the stuff about Corban and the creation of the Jedi Order. So we've padded out the details and timeline with input from other sources like the Dawn of the Jedi series and, of course, many reference books. Despite these additional sources, the timeline of the Infinite Empire is still difficult to nail down because many of the early events have no dates or established time frames, so bear with us. We have to provide this necessary background on the Rakata and weave it in with the founding of the Jedi for reasons that will become apparent. Now, just imagine all this is being told by a storyteller and translated by HK-47 for Revan. Many years before 36,453 BBY, the Rakata were simply another species enslaved by the mighty Celestials, who were a race so advanced that they built the Corellia system using a planetary tractor beam called Centerpoint Station. The Rakata, who the Sand People storyteller calls the Builders, were humanoid amphibians with giant cone heads and eye stalks jutting out to each side of their head. Eventually, another client species of the Celestials, the Qua, mysteriously arrived on the Rakata homeworld Leon. Or Lyon. I don't know. Maybe it's pronounced like the, like the French city. I don't know. It's whatever. The Qua were also extremely technologically advanced and traveled via proprietary, faster-than-light travel systems called Infinity Gates. The Infinity Gates were teleportation points that instantaneously transported transported the Qua from any world with an infinity gate to another. It's kind of like a stargate. The Qua are a benevolent species of force-sensitive lizard creatures based on the world Dathomir, where their main infinity gate resided. 
For generations, the Qua routinely acted as benefactors to less advanced species and raised them up, teaching them the ways of the forest and giving them advanced technology with which to build a better civilization. Most species accepted the gift and held to the Qua teachings of balance in the forest and benevolence, but the Rakata were different. After their initial encounter with the Qua, the Rakata ignored teachings on balance and embraced the dark side of the force alone, infusing all their technology with the dark side. They were also cannibals, even consuming their own people. The Rakata first developed the force-based hyperdrive, which allowed them to travel to worlds strong in the force, and they soon began building their empire in the unknown regions. Finally, the Rakata turned on the Qua, desiring the technology behind the Infinity Gates. A massive battle was fought on Lihon, which saw thousands of Qua die defending the the Infinity Gate while the others dismantled it. The Qua defense was successful, and they retreated to their homeworld after destroying the, the remaining gates around the galaxy to further deprive the Rakata. In... 36,453 before the Battle of Gavin, the galaxy changed forever when four sensitives across the galaxy were mysteriously beckoned to eight pyramidal ships called the Tho-Yor. These ships had existed for centuries, lying dormant on various worlds such as Ando Prime, Kashik, Ryloth, and Dathomir. Each Tho-Yor ship would make many stops before reaching their final destination, and they gathered four sensitives from many different species, including humans, Cathar, the Sith species, Miraluka, Kraki, Sulistans, and many more. In the end, all eight Thoyor navigated the complicated hyperspace lanes of the Deep Core to reach a world called Thion. Each ship dropped off its passengers and then settled in a specific place on Thion. Within a thousand years of their arrival, the new inhabitants of Tython had formed into a cohesive group and called themselves the Jedi Order. That's J-E apostrophe D-A-I-I. You see what they did there? Very clever. Which is, as you <laughs> may have gathered by being a person who can hear things, the precursor to the modern Jedi. Meanwhile, across the galaxy, the Rakata expanded their campaign of conquest and by 35,000 BBY, the Infinite Empire was officially founded. It is then supposed that the Rakata made war on the Celestials who disappeared from all records by 33,600. With their two biggest rivals, the Celestials and the Qua, out of the way, the Rakata conquered every world they encountered and enslaved its inhabitants. They would then strip the world of all its natural resources, including minerals, gases, or anything else they might need for their creations. Why strip worlds of resources? HK47 has a simple and brutal answer. Quote, Obvious. The same reason Circa Corporation is attempting it now. Expanding empires need tremendous amounts of resources. End quote. HK47 joined DSA. They also terraformed extensively. Comrade HK47. Yes, comrade, comrade Murderbot. At some point, the Infinite Empire conquered Kashyyyk and installed a terraforming supercomputer there, but it stopped receiving instructions from the Rakata in 33,598. A little over 200 years later, the terraforming supercomputer totally malfunctioned, 
causing hyperacceleration in the growth of the native Roche trees, which led to the gigantic trees Kashuk would become known for. That's my second favorite piece of information about the ricotta. We're going to get to the first in just a second. Then in 30,000 BBY, the ricotta completed their greatest work, the super weapon and super foundry known as the Star Forge. Built above the Star Abo in the ricotta home system, Leon, the Star, the Star Forge fed upon Abo to create legions of battle droids and fleets of ships and cruisers. The ricotta, the ricotta were ascended in the galaxy and there was nothing left to stand in the way of total domination except the ricotta themselves. At its height, the Infinite Empire ruled more than 500 worlds rich in the force, including Coruscant, Korriban, Tatooine, Kashyyyk, Megiddo, Dantooine, Zagiria, Onderon, Gamor, and Biss. Though the Rakati usually just enslaved, the local population stripped the world of its resources and maybe did some light terraforming. Some worlds, like Belsavis, were completely changed. After conquering the world, the Rakata turned Belsavis into a prison planet where they held their enemies in a form of fully alert suspended animation. The prison was created for the purpose of containing a mysterious being called the World Razor, who had consumed more than 1,000 worlds before the entire might of the Infinite Empire was used to subdue it. The Rakata would go on to fill up Belsavis with all kinds of prisoners, including many of their own species. Despite this galactic level of dominance, the Rakata would soon be utterly defeated and disappear from the galaxy almost entirely after slave revolts and a mysterious plague ravaged the population. The downward spiral began around 27,793 BBY when the Rakata were finally defeated by one of their slave races. After conquering Tatooine, which was a lush world with Beautiful oceans and a planetary jungle at the time, the Rakata enslaved the native population, the Kamuga. The Kamuga were a technologically advanced race before being crushed under the boot of the Rakata, but were able to take advantage of a new plague that began to infect the Rakata. This mysterious disease cut the Rakata off from the Force, meaning their Force-based technologies were mostly useless. When the Rakata attempted to retreat, the Kamuga sabotaged their ship, the ship's of their former masters killing many. Unfortunately, the Infinite Empire had enough of their technology left to make their former subjects pay, unleashing an orbital bombardment so staggering that they destroyed destroyed the jungles and vaporized the oceans. Literally, Rakata blasted Tatooine so thoroughly that the minerals in the soil fused together to form glass, which was broken over time, forming the sand that Anakin Skywalker so loathed. Almost overnight, Tatooine was taken from a beautiful world covered in jungles, oceans, and the cities of the Kamuga, and turned into a world completely covered in sand. The Rakatan bombardment utterly crushed the Kamuga, who devolved into two separate species, Jawas and Gorfas, aka the Sand People. The storyteller claims that many of the Sand People's ancestors survived by hiding out in their extensive cave systems, but as HK47 helpfully notes, it is unlikely that many of the Kamuga survived the blasts. At this point in HK-47's translation, the storyteller implies that humans might have originated on Tatooine as an offshoot of the Sand People or at least a distant relation. Claiming that Tatooine is the ancestral home of humans flies in the face of prevailing idea that humans originated on Coruscant as 
offshoots of the Zell race. But Revan and HK-47 are in this story for the long haul, so they don't question the storyteller. Around 27,700, the Rakata were again challenged by another race. This time it was the Sith species on their homeworld, Korriban, which was still a world teeming with life then. If you're recognizing a pattern here, you're, you're very smart. Around 28,000, the Sith species were united under a leader named Adis, who was proclaimed, proclaimed king and is said to have been the first Sithari. The Sithari was essentially the Sith version of the Chosen One, so it wasn't just the Jedi who had that myth. When the Infinite Empire located Korriban, they at first tried to ingratiate themselves to the local species by working with Adis and giving him some of their technology, like the secret to making holocrons. It is unknown why the Rakata didn't just invade Korriban. Maybe it was because the Sith species always fed on the dark side of the Force. Regardless of the reasoning, the Sith betrayed the Rakata and sought to use their new technology against their invaders. King Adis gathered his forces on one of Korriban's open fields and pushed and pushed back the would-be conquerors, driving the Infinite Empire off-world. Adis died in the fighting, but he was successful in leading his people against the Rakata. However, just like Tatooine, the Rakata decimated Korriban from orbit, turning it into a lifeless dust bowl that we have become so accustomed to. The Sith species weren't destroyed. They uh, appropriated some crashed Rakatan ships and began to spread out from Korriban, inhabiting Zyos to Malachor V and Tuned. Korriban was left as a tomb world, which is how Revan will find it in 3956. In 25,793, a Rakatan came face-to-face with a foe they couldn't just blow out of the sky. In that year, the Infinite Empire's leader, Skalnas, used his Force Hound, Zesh, to locate a world of unimaginable power in the Force called Tython. Force Hounds were Force-sensitive slaves of Rakatan leaders who were used to seek out new worlds rich in the Force for the Infinite Empire. In 25,792, Skalnas led a massive Rakatan fleet into the Tython system, seeking access to a fabled infinity gate that supposedly lay hidden on Tython. Skalnas had already sensed his race's fading connection to the Force and was hoping to reverse the problem by finding the gate. The Jedi didn't even know of the gate's existence that lay at the bottom of a chasm that had a defense mechanism installed long ago by the Qua, which drove anyone insane who ventured too deep without having the logo of the Thoyor fixed in their mind. If you've been wondering why we don't give Don the Jedi high marks, just listen to the last few sentences over again. The logo of the Thoyor fixed in their mind. The Jedi order banded and together. It, it, the, hold on. And the logo, the logo is the little, um, like, uh, widget looking logo that is the same symbol that's used by the empire. Like the little thing, it has like six or eight little, uh, yeah. I don't know how to describe it other than that, but that I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know why it is that I, I don't get it, but you know, the, there you go. <laughs> the, sure. Great. So yeah, the Jedi order banded together, healed their divisions and fought back against the invaders with the force hound Zesh switching sides early on in the struggle. 
However, it didn't seem to be enough, as the Rakata were an implacable foe, and Skullnass would not be denied. Finally, when all hope was lost, a Jedi seer was informed by a Qual holocron that she had to physically become one with the Force in order to protect Tython. The seer stepped into a beam of pure Force energy, which reactivated the Thoyor and brought their weapon systems online. The Thoyor, which had been dormant for more than 10,000 years, fired destructive blasts of Force energy, crippling much of the Rakatan fleet on Tython and destroying the Infinity Gate within the Great Chasm. Skalnas was then slain by Zesh on Tython, which the Rakata immediately felt through the Force. Without a strong leader, the Rakata fell to infighting and abandoned the system. The Jedi Order, which had just staved off Annihilation, immediately fell to infighting and the Force Wars began. This, uh, the Jedi fought amongst themselves, dividing, dividing into followers of Ashla, the light side, and Bogan, the dark side. The Force Wars, which technically began with their, with their encounter of the Rakata in, in 25,793, lasted for about 10 years until a great cataclysm rendered Tython uninhabitable. That is three basically sterilized worlds in like four paragraphs. All of the Jedi fled the system in sleeper ships, eventually landing on Ossus after more than 700 years and building the Jedi Order there. The Rakata, for their part, still controlled hundreds of worlds and trillions of slaves after the defeat, but it would only last for another 500 years as civil war and disease finally struck. Around 25,200 BBY, the entire species was struck by the mysterious plague that totally and permanently blinded them to the Force. Why did it take 2,000 years to spread from the Rakata on Tatooine to the entire species? We have no clue. It's just one of those little... Star Wars contradictions, you know. <laughs> as you might imagine, this spelled the end for the Rakata as their technology was functionally useless without the ability to fetch force. The Rakata attempted to bring in other weapons and machines that didn't require the force, but their slaves were too many and too pra- and too powerful. In a brutal series of uprisings, Rakata and the greater galaxy were slaughtered by their former slaves as worlds sought revenge against their brutal oppressors. The only remaining Rakata left in the galaxy were on their homeworld of Lahone and in the remote Tion cluster. The Rakata of Lahone uh, shut themselves off from the rest of the galaxy because the world was inaccessible without star map coordinates. The species would survive but devolve into tribalism on Lahone where they were met by Revan and Malik in 3960. The Rakata and Tion gave up their hyperdrive technology to former human slaves and survived as late as 25,100 BBY, though they eventually died out too. In 25,053 BBY, the Galactic Republic was founded, ending the Before the Republic publishing era and ushering in our beloved Old Republic era. So... After more than 10,000 years of other galactic domination, the Infinite Empire was undone in a matter of weeks by a plague of unknown origin and infighting. It's theorized that the plague was created by one of their enslaved races, but that has never been confirmed. And yet, despite the fact that they disappeared from the galactic stage by 3,956, the Rakatan impact on the rest of history would prove to be enormous. 
They're credited with spreading multiple species across hundreds of worlds, seeding entire regions of the galaxy with sentient life, and introducing interspecies cooperation. Because Rakuten hyperdrives could only travel to worlds rich in the Force, their empire was vast but not connected in any way. It held worlds as distant as Lehon in the western unknown regions to Tund, which was on the op complete opposite side of the galaxy, off one of the eastern arms. There are links to maps of galactic geography, the Jedi Civil War, and the Rakuten Infinite Empire in the show notes if you want to take a look. They also left star maps on many conquered worlds, not for navigational purposes, but as monuments to their own greatness that just happened to contain astrogation charts. Further, the Rakata were almost solely responsible for the introduction of hyperspace travel into the galaxy because their force-based design was later reverse-engineered around 25,053 by both Duro and Corellian scientists separately. This led to the creation of the Tumble Hyperdrive, early hyperspace beacons, and the Hyperspace Cannon. Though these devices were considered slower than more modern versions, they were often and they were often dangerous, they became widely used and spurred the growth of the fledgling Galactic Republic. Mercado were even credited with creating the first energy shields. They also terraformed and strip-mined countless worlds to the point that they have no idea we have no idea the extent of their reshaping. That doesn't even include the worlds like Tatooine and Corbin that were utterly decimated and sterilized, never to fully recover. Canon Alert 26. Before we leave the story today, we want to note a very interesting inclusion in the Star Wars canon. To be honest, we can't even be certain that it is canon since the story is presented as a fable or legend within the Star Wars universe and uh, may be a complete exaggeration like our human myths. Then again, there is always a little bit of truth in legends. This tale is found in a, is found in a group of interactive stories exclusively via Amazon Alexa entitled Star Wars Choose Your Own Destiny Mini Missions. These stories are only released as audiobooks and are connected to the main Choose Your, Own, Choose Your Destiny series of books. Written by Cabin Scott, the missions are brief with most able to be completed in just a few minutes and proceed as you might expect an interactive audio version of a Choose Your Own Adventure story would. Earlier in 2019, an escape mission, one of these Amazon exclusives, was released. Now, the, pl the plot is inconsequential, but there's an extremely interesting interaction between the player character and a Baomar monk toward the end of the mission. You might remember the Baomar monks as the brains floating in jars attached to mechanical spider legs that showed up in the background of Jabba's palace in Return of the Jedi. In an escape mission, if the listener asks the monk how old Tatooine is, the monk goes on a long rant about the many disparate creation myths native to Tatooine, the Jawas, and the Sand People. This rant goes on for enough time that it would probably make the Sand People storyte storyteller proud. But the last thing, but the last legend that is presented is the most interesting. The Omar monk states, quote, Of course, if you believe the legend of Lahone, Tatooine was once covered by lush jungle, the domain of the Kamunga, Kamunga, I don't know, although little evidence has been found for their existence. That said, and no one has ever been able to decrypt the pictograms in the Gorfa Cavern, end quote. 
Now, that's basically an abridged version of the stories from Knights of the Old Republic and Dawn of the Jedi, and it's the first time almost any of that has been referenced in canon because uh, Rakata Prime was listed, but the name Lahone never was. Um, so we figured it should get its own canon alert, even if it is just a myth within a canon story. All right. Wow. Canon within canon within canon. We are. Deep I mean, that. like good. when when we started this, I didn't expect that I'd have to do canon inception and like explain a an Amazon choose your own adventure audio book. But, you know, it, what can you do? That's life. I, it's it's certainly Disney at the very least. So, thank you all for listening <laughs> yes. to a people's history of the Old Republic. Next time, we're going to talk about all those side quests we breezed past today before heading off for Kashyyyk, where we'll meet another cranky old man with a lot of long stories named Jolie Bindo. We'll probably talk about the history of the Grey Jedi, sorry, the Grey Jedi, and get to know Zalbar much better as we liberate Kashyyyk from Serka. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to People's History of the Old Republic on Google, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>